The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome to Monday night. I am here for Diana, who is on retreat, conducting a retreat. I have all kinds of things hanging off my ear here. Just a moment while I make sure it's all secure. So um, what I'd like to talk to you about has to do with the experience of being at ease in practice. However, as I was considering that, I realized that there was a tendency on my part to jump right into the middle of the discussion and that maybe it would be useful to have some place to start from. (laughs) And since I'm going to be here two Monday nights in a row, I'm going to start not talking about that. What I would like to do is talk about the importance of how we understand mindfulness, what it means in the practice, and the value of long-term practice, the the value of not giving up on practice. So first I'm going to tell you a story. So recently I watched a movie, a film, called um, The Way Back. And uh, it's not the latest one by Ben Affleck about a uh, sports team. This is the one that was made uh, a number of years ago about a group of prisoners in, who were in a gulag in S- Siberia who escaped and walked 4,000 miles to India. Now, when I first, when the when the movie comes up, the first thing that is shown is it says this is based on a real life experience. So, it turns out, it turns out that not everything in the movie is entirely true or defensible. Nevertheless, the movie really impressed me with what it took to get those prisoners who were starving and sick and in the dead of winter to leave a gulag in Siberia, and make their way all the way to India. Now, in the process, there were, there were, uh, there was six of them, and not all of them made it to India. There were only three that made it to India. And uh, turns out one of the characters was entirely made up, <laughs> But the movie was based on a real-life experience in a memoir that maybe this person had, or maybe he was talking about someone else's experience. And so what's interesting to me is how the movie impacted me with the one characteristic that was most important, which was you just did not stop. You kept walking. No matter what happened, you just kept going. And he, there was one particular leader who was a, a Polish uh, engineer, and he uh, had been accused of spying. So he, he was in Poland, and this was in 1939, and the Russians were occupying Poland at that time. And he had said some inflammatory things against Stalin, and so he was arrested, and he never agreed that he had done any of these horrible things, but they tortured his wife, who 
testified against him. So he got, he got a, a sentence of 25 years in this gulag, and off he went, and all the trials and tribulations of being in this gulag. And they set out on the road, and he said, the one thing I have to do is I have to get back to Poland. I have to get back so that I can tell my wife not to feel guilty about doing this. He ha- that was his primary motivation. I mean, obviously he wanted to escape, he wanted out, but mostly he worried that his wife was going to be carrying this burden. And that was the thing that kept him going. And so he was constantly encouraging people as he went along. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. They left with a hatchet, a knife, and a week's worth of food. He was, uh, this character was the leader of the group because he believed they could do it. He believed they could do it. Everybody else said, okay, it's worth a try. I'm just going to die here otherwise. And so they followed him religiously. What do you think? Are we going the right way? You know, I don't think we're going the right way. Are you sure we're going the right way? Constantly wanting reassurance. And we do that. We do that in our practice. We say, well, am I getting to where I need to go? How am I doing? You know the answer. You have to tell me how this happens. How do I make this happen? What am I doing wrong? Why can't I concentrate? Why can't... Why am I not there? How come I can't measure that I am better on the path, that I'm, a, I'm the person that I want to be? How can I? What's happening? They were constantly asking him, and he would go on ahead and come back and get them. And all of the characters changed over the course of this trek. They changed in ways they didn't expect. Mostly, they tended to be very uh, distrustful of one another and independent, totally isolationist. And what they discovered is it took all of them to survive. It took all of their skills, whether they particularly valued those skills or not. It took everyone to make that happen. And they began to feel the, the, the lines between them totally unintentionally, of course. They set out with the, yeah, we all have to be together, but I'm keeping mine to me. And they discovered that didn't work. They had to keep going. They had to depend on one another. And this one could cook, and that one could hunt, and that one could fish, and that one knew how to make the directions work. And it took all of them. It took the guy who was willing to risk being found to go ask people why are the why are the mosquitoes so bad and why aren't you affected by the mosquitoes? Oh well, you have to use this particular thing, which is a mosquito repellent. You just go over here and pick. Oh, okay, and then all of a sudden, all that misery went away. When they set out on the trip, they didn't know. They thought they knew what the obstacles were going to be, but they actually didn't know. The path that we set out on, we don't know the outcome. We don't know what's going to come up, what's going to be an obstacle for us, what's going to not fit the vision we have. And then what happens when that 
obstacle arises. <sighs> okay, I guess I wasn't meant to. Or, or can we say, well, that's interesting, now what? And what we learn along the way is how the idea that we have about what the path is, how we're going to get where we're going, maybe is just an idea. And it may be something that gets us started or gets us moving. But what truly has value is what's actually true. Where am I on the path? Am I have I found the lake? <laughs> have I not found the lake? Mostly, they trekked across Siberia. They went to Mongolia, and they thought, okay, when we get to Mongolia, we'll be safe. We'll be out of Russia. But then the first thing they saw when they got to Mongolia was a, a picture of Stalin. And they said, oops, it seems that this country is also not safe for us. And so they decided to go on to Tibet, which meant crossing the Gobi Desert, They lost a couple of the people in the desert. That was hard. That was difficult. That was terminal for some. And they kept going. At the beginning of the trip, one of the characters, who was an American, told the leader, he said, well, I'm going to go with you because you have a fatal flaw that will work in my favor. And he said, what's the flaw? And he said, kindness. I've watched you. You're kind. And when I am really failing, I'm going to count on you to carry me. <laughs> and that actually happened. You know, he didn't actually have to physically carry him, but he had to literally drag him along and, no, we're not going to leave you, and, yes, we can do this, and... What we think of as our flaws or our gifts are not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. And very often we get caught in the trap in our practice of how we think it ought to look, how we think we ought to be. There were two major things that happened to this man. As they, as they went along, they, they eventually got to Tibet, and the American went off and joined an, uh, an American group somewhere out of Tibet, and three people went on over the Himalayas. And when they got there, the first thing is they said, well, where are your passports? And they, you know, they laughed. <laughs> and the, and the, the man said, well, how did you get here from Siberia? And they said, we walked. I think it was that the repetition of that phrase, we walked, we just did it. We just did it. We just kept going and we didn't stop. Now the rest of the story is that the, the Pole eventually got back to Poland. Now he was arrested in 39. He arrived in India in 42. He didn't get to go to Poland until 1989, when the communists left Poland, after the, uh, after the Berlin Wall fall, fell, and like the Lesa and, and the Solidarity Movement took over in Poland, then in 1989 he went to Poland, and he found his wife and told her it was okay. 
the determination and the willingness to say, I don't want you to have to carry this. So there were kind of the two tracks. There was the determination to keep going and the issue of what are you carrying on your journey? What is it that you're carrying? Mostly what we carry on our journey is memories. We carry memories. We carry our beliefs on how things should be locked up in the process that we call memory. And part of what we do on our path is we lay down some of those memories or we shift those memories. You know, when I was in high school, I was fascinated by the idea of memory. And I wanted to, the the reason I became a scientist in the first place was I wanted to understand how the brain chemically created a memory. What the hell does that mean? How do we do that? And at the time, actually, that wasn't as strange a way of thinking about memory. But over time, neuroscientists have come up with other explanations for how memories are formed and what actually a memory is. So the brain operates on a kind of... It's, it's kind of... A way to think about the brain is a very sophisticated chatbot. What it does is take information that has been... that it receives about experience and it forms meaning boxes, you know, little, little synaptic circuits of with this set of conditions, with these things that happen, this means there's danger here and the reaction should be fear. The memory is actually a process. It's a series of synaptic firings that form patterns that we assign meaning to. So that the, the brain actually works as a kind of predictive device. It says, oh, oh, I see this is happening. This is the reaction. Give you an, ex- an example of what that might be. You might say, well, um, I'm thinking of ice cream. And as soon as I say ice cream, something happens in you. You either have a, you have a visual idea of ice cream or you have a, you know, a giant X in front of ice cream. And the ice cream might be vanilla or it might be chocolate or it might be pistachio. And if it's pistachio, then maybe your salivary glands start moving because now you're, you have a memory of taste incorporated in this circuit is the process by which we make sense of what our experience is and we predict what we need to be, how we need to approach something. So hearing ice cream, all kinds of things get triggered off, triggered. And the ice cream isn't even real. It's not even here. So the way memory works, memory has... um, it has a, a number of, uh, it, you know, it's a, it, it has some characteristics. So memory, I looked up what's the definition of memory. Memory is the continued process of information retention over time. Continued process of information retention over time. It's a process. It's not a chemical stored somewhere in the brain. <laughs> and memory has, has some characteristics. So there's the encoding 
how do how is the memory laid down? There is the uh, uh, let's see, no, yeah, the, the, it's laid down, it's stored. How is it encoded? It's stored, and then it's retrieved. That's you know, that's, functionally, that's what the memory does, right? So it turns out, and there are different kinds of memory. There's short-term memory and long-term memory. Short-term memory only lasts for a few seconds. And it's usually auditory in, in nature. So we can remember lists of numbers, for example. Long-term memory is encoded a different way. It's not just re- repetition. It has associated with it some other kinds of encoding, how something looks, how something sounds. Somatic coding throws it definitely into the long-term memory. What that means is it has a meaning. When we store it with a meaning, it goes into long-term memory. So when we say uh, a siren going off, we hear a siren, then in that siren we can hear danger or we can hear safety, depending on what we lay, lay down, how we think about that sound. Does that sound mean somebody is coming to save me? Or does that sound mean, oh, there's people in danger somewhere? What, what, is, what is the emotional thing laid down in that memory circuit along with what you hear? Now, the reason I'm talking about all of this is it affects how we view our experience. Just the process of how the brain works. So, for example, um, when I smell yeast, I get happy. Automatically, my mood goes up and I go, oh, it is associated with a very old memory of my mother baking bread. And when she baked bread, at the time I initially started thinking about this and the neurocircuit was set up, I felt very safe. Really safe. There's my mother making bread, and I'm just standing there while she's making bread. Now, the details of that I actually don't have in my memory bank. But as I tell the story, I'm reinforcing that association between yeast, the smell of yeast, and the memory of being safe. And every time I tell myself that story, I embellish it a little bit. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I kind of remember she had this aluminum bowl that she used to start. No, maybe that was for the biscuits. But, but I do remember, right? And so as, as you begin to expand the story, you start creating other associations. It's just the smell of yeast. All of the things that we conjure up about our experience can be found in these memory banks that consist of neural circuits. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is I want us to understand the depersonalizing that occurs when you look at it as just a neural circuit and not from the point of view of ownership This is me and who I am. 
as soon as we make this association where we say <clears throat> the, this experience, this sensory input has this meaning, we are shifting away from the experience into what we think about the experience. We've added things together and homogenized them in such a way that we begin to think that this memory, this process of putting together data is who I am. It's me. When it's just a process. It's just a process. So when we obsess about something, we're reinforcing it as a neurocircuit in our brain. As we retell a story to ourselves, we're reinforcing it. So if I tell a story, um, these people have upset me. These people are really terrible people. This person is really a horrible person. I'm laying down a, a memory trace that says, when I hear the sound of this person's voice, I have a bad reaction. A reaction, this is bad. This is undesirable. This is unpleasant. Maybe when I said ice cream, you imagined the ice cream splotch on your favorite shirt. And ice cream is not a pleasant thing for you at all. And for someone else, it's a very pleasant thing. It's just ice cream. And in fact, it's not really ice cream. It's the idea of ice cream. To my knowledge, there's no ice cream in this room. And we're not directly experiencing it. Or we see a highway patrolman. What happens? Do you automatically step on the brake and look at, to see what your speed is? I do. It's amazing to me how quickly that happens. And I say, well, why are you doing that? I'm not necessarily speeding. Brake. First thing, brake. Somewhere in the, in the laying down of that, what that car, the appearance of that car means is some fear associated with authority, discipline, something. And the reaction is, I have to, I have to be sure. I have to be, I have to be safe. And we think, you know, well, the fear reaction comes, is, you know, an automatic reaction comes from the amygdala. We have all these stories about the location of these thoughts and the source of fear. But really, it can be found in these memory circuits that aren't necessarily true, aren't necessarily real. They're just habits of mind. So when we talk about habits of mind, we're not really just talking about our tendency to do something. We're actually talking about not seeing how this set of conditions is triggering some circuit that calls for a certain reaction. It's it's not really our fault. It's kind of how the brain works. 
But when we see it, when we see, oh, look, I'm reacting, we can say, but I don't have to because it is not me. It's just something that, you know what? It's misinterpreting what's going on. So this afternoon, my husband came to me and he said, uh, uh, no, I said, let's have some tofu and vegetables for dinner. And he said, okay, great. He said, you know, uh, uh, we'll try out that new press that we've got. And uh, he said, we'll put some olive oil on it. So I looked at him and I thought, olive oil? (laughs) Now, the way he interpreted that was, I did not want olive oil under any conditions to be put on the tofu. So he baked the tofu, <laughs> which turned out to be really, you know, hard and, and kind of crisp and tasteless <laughs> because he interpreted my look to be, oh, whatever you do, don't put oil on the tofu. And no amount of my saying, you know, it kind of depends on what you're doing with the tofu, whether you put oil on it, had any impact he had already heard that I didn't want oil on the tofu. Now, all of this is just interpretation. It wasn't my intention. It's not what he wanted to do. (laughs) But he wanted to please me. Okay, that's interesting. This happens all the time. In order for us to learn from our mindfulness what's actually happening, we have to watch what the mind does. We have to be able to see, oh, this is the mind doing that. So in, uh, in the last month, despite all my efforts and good actions, I managed to contract COVID. And it was interesting to get COVID because, well... There were all kinds of ways to watch my, my mind work under those conditions. So I noticed anger coming up. I told the FDA they should be freeing up that next booster shot. And I, and I laughed at this. What am I being angry at you know, some faceless government organization that I felt should have been doing something they didn't do? And sure enough, I got COVID, and it's their fault. We often assign blame when we feel discomfort. And it's very difficult to appreciate the fact that we are causing that suffering, not they. It is our reaction to that suffering, to that stimulus. It is totally owned by us. That anger is my fault. Well, maybe not my fault. It's just that narrow circuit. But I have to own it. It's still my choice to allow it to stay there. It arises. It passes away. Unless I keep telling my story about how the FDA was remiss for not releasing the shot, right? The more often I tell that story, the more often I have a justification for being angry. Or I watched my energy level being really low, really low energy. And I was 
starving. All I wanted to do was eat. I was just starving. Well, I wasn't starving. But my body was reacting to, to low energy by saying, we got to get the energy up, let's eat some food. Because the energy was being used up, all the ATP was being used up fighting off the infection. And I was unable to say, you know, you're not starving. And then I would catch myself and say, you know, Maria, you're not starving. <laughs> you don't have to eat. You don't have to chew. The, to watch the reaction and say, I don't have to. I don't have to. So that it's not me saying, well, I'm not going to allow myself to eat so that I'm denying something. I'm saying the urge to eat is definitely here. I feel like I'm starving. But what's actually happening is I feel this hollowness in my stomach. Well, the hollowness in the stomach can be caused by any number of things. Sadness, feeling of isolation. (sighs) I got caught after all. I made a contract with the universe. If I always wore my mask and got my shots, this wouldn't happen. And look what happened. And to feel that caving in part and say, you know, that's not actually hunger. It's the caving in. So that I can separate what is the experience from the meaning that has been assigned based on how the brain is working. You have to actually catch yourself doing this. And it takes a lot of practice. You have to just keep walking. You have to say, oh, look at that. It's doing that again. We come to recognize the tendency of the mind to coalesce around a concept, around, any, around sensory input. Hearing, taste, smell, feeling. Oh, this means. And to watch the mind say, this means. In Buddhist practice, when we talk about what is experience, we talk about the aggregates. And we say, okay, here's how we know we're having an experience. The features of the experience are the physical sensory input, the, the feeling tone, this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The naming, the concept, this is, you know, I pick this up, this is round, it's cool, there's some fluid in here, and I call this a glass. That's a concept. As soon as I name it, now I've given it function and meaning and usefulness. It's still just a piece of Glass, which, you know, glass is a liquid, actually. (laughs) But, okay, it makes sounds when I touch it with my fingernail. Okay, so there's the concept. And then there's, well, this is a nice glass. I like the lines on the glass. Now, I'm thinking about the concept, so there's the thinking part, the thinking mind. And then there's the awareness. Until I looked down at this glass... It didn't even exist. Until I look up, 
I could sit here with my eyes closed talking and none of you would be here. You might as well be uh, listening on YouTube or something. So those pieces of the experience can be found in all of our experiences. And when we look at them closely, we can distinguish between the experience itself and the meaning we've assigned to that experience, the concept attached to that experience. So why is that important? As we look at what is the experience happening in this moment, A, it means we're in this moment and not in our memory. We're not relating it to what happened before. That kind of reflective thinking can be very useful when you're solving problems. But if you're just looking at an experience, to see just the experience, it's all extra stuff. And it can be misleading. And the concept that we attached, however we describe the experience, then conditions us for the next moment, when we are here in this moment, having a new experience with conditions that are not exactly the same because now we've added the preconception to the next moment. I'm depressed. I have low energy and I'm depressed. Oh, now there follows from that all the things I'm looking for around depression and the feeling that I need to get out of depression and why am I depressed? I shouldn't be depressed and now I'm I'm criticizing and I'm lost in the self-critical mode. And each of these things is building on the other when really it was just low energy. And maybe the problem is I have COVID and I'm weary. Maybe the problem isn't depression to begin with, but created by my adding a concept to the feeling of very low energy. And so, when we tell people, you know, when you notice that you are anxious, just stay with the anxiety. Let it be the, just let it be there. I wonder how useful that is. Because as soon as we call it anxiety, we have a whole string of meaning to attach to that word anxiety. And Anxiety is not a momentary thing, but it becomes another thing. And we reify it. We make that experience into something rather than the process that it began with. And we get trapped into cycles of suffering having to do with just the way the brain works and are saying, yeah, 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 I get it. I know what that is. So <clears throat> I have, uh, I've been working on a, a major project for three years for my homeowners association having to do with installing EV chargers. This was an unpopular project. Nobody really wanted it. And uh, when I started out three years ago, it was just an idea. Let's see how we can make EV charging capability 
possible in our apartment complex because we're limited. It's an old complex. And I have a charger, but that means other people in the building may not be able to put it in because there's a limited capacity. So I started looking into this, and lo and behold, as time went on, Peninsula Clean Energy came up with some incentives for people like us to install EV chargers. And so now we have a a project. And um, last week, the board approved it, and PCE approved the incentives, and it's actually going to happen. But the last six weeks of the project were hell. (laughs) I kept thinking, we already decided we were going to do this. Let's go. Let's go. And everybody was moving at a different pace. And I was thinking all the things that could happen because I'm used to big projects and that they always have something happen and things fall out of bed and then you have to pick them up. But for sure it's not going to happen if you don't start. And I noticed patterns of stress being set up that were very familiar to me from my work life. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? I could feel the reactions, the reactions that would set in and and how I was going to solve these and how important it was. And as I asked more and more questions of myself, what's really happening here? What's really happening here? I came to understand that I was falling into an old pattern that I didn't have to. There were several things that happened. One of them was that uh, because I'd been working on it so long, I owned it. It was mine. My project. My very important project. And as soon as I said, this is not your project, you don't need this to happen. There's nothing, if this doesn't happen, there are no consequences to you. And in fact, it just means, you know, there'll be another solution in the future, but it won't be this solution. And so what are you attached to that is causing this suffering? And I realized I was attached to a feeling of ownership, responsibility, competence, I could make this happen. And as soon as I let go of that, all of the stress went away. As soon as I said, I don't actually have to do this. I don't have to make this my project. It doesn't have to be about me. I don't have to be embarrassed because they've asked me to go get somebody to get in writing what they've told me verbally. I don't have to be, feel like this is a failure for me. I don't have to react this way. But I have to see it really carefully. I have to see that's what's happening in order to stop creating my own suffering. I have to see what's being triggered. I have to see how the mind is interpreting everything that's happening and that I don't have to interpret it that way. 
I don't have to look at the people who are dragging their feet and think negative thoughts about them. I don't have to. I can say, ooh, they're really worried about something. And not make it about me. Really, really, actually difficult. Actually difficult to rephrase the meaning that the brain assigns to something. So another thing that's going on is around me, the, there's a, a golf course, and they're reconstructing this golf course. And they've cut down trees, huge, huge redwood trees, and digging up the yard. And there are all these strange pieces of equipment. And I watch the pieces of equipment moving around, and I try to imagine what they're doing. What is that thing that looks like a dung beetle, that big thing that's got that big thing on the front of it? And what is it doing? And why are they doing that? And the process of watching the mind curious, I can see that the mind is trying to establish meaning around every piece of equipment. They're doing this so that this is true. They're doing this because... Watch the mind doing that allows me to feel what the mind feels like when it's creating concepts. Does that make any sense? Sort of the experience of watching the mind make new connections. Make new stories. And what was interesting was to have my husband and I both looking at the same dung beetle piece of equipment, which was his phrasing for that, by the way. I called it a rake. To look at that and see that we were forming different meanings for what that device was doing. He says, oh, well, it's digging up the roots. I said, no, 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 no. It's sorting through those piles of debris. You know, it's just different stuff. Not important, not significant. But to realize that the meaning that is established by the mind is based on experiences that have come before. All of the conditions of our lives have conditioned the way we react to what's coming next. We have to see that. And the way we see that is by constantly being mindful, watching, watching what's happening seeing what's happening. We just keep walking. And the, the longer, the more consistently we walk, the more we see. The more we see. The more clearly we see. We just keep practicing. And what comes out of it is the realization that we don't have to judge what we see. Oh, oh, that's happening. We replace judgment with discernment. Ah, that's what's happening. Know where you're going and go there. Be aware of your intentions and take the next step. 
That's it. Thank you. So I'm sorry I talked a little longer than I expected, but if you have any questions, uh, we can talk afterwards. Or now if you have something you want to say. Okay. May you watch the mind. It's a magical device, but it doesn't do magical things. It just does what it sees. May you see clearly and well. Thank you. Good night.